It's a delight to share Dharma with you again tonight. I was just sitting here contemplating how fortunate we all are that we get to do this, that we get to um, gather together and contemplate uh, how to free our hearts and minds. And tonight we're going to continue this journey through the Bojangas, going to the last of the calming factors, equanimity. So we started with mindfulness, the kingpin of them all, and then we talked about the three energizing factors of um, investigation, effort, and joyous interest. And then we talked about the calming factors of tranquility or calm and concentration. And now we'll talk about equanimity. As I was sitting here contemplating how to begin the talk, I thought of this very brief review that I gave you. And I thought of, um, in Burma, that most of the talks uh, they would do, um, about two-thirds would be review of what they previously talked about. And then there'd be like one-third of the talk that would be new. And this would go on night after night. And for us... Westerners, we thought, you know, it made you feel kind of impatient. <laughs> like, okay, we already heard that, <laughs> but that it doesn't. In Burma, it doesn't matter. You, you know, you just they say it all over again. Um, I think hoping it'll sink in and uh, be remembered. But I guess I'm going to do the Western way tonight and um, move on. So equanimity, there's actually ten kinds of equanimity, uh, but we're only going to talk about two here. We're going to talk about tonight, sixth sense equanimity, and then tomorrow I will talk about uh, equanimity as a Brahma Vihara. Equanimity is considered the deepest kind of happiness that we can experience in this mundane world. I bet you didn't When you hear that word, I bet you don't think that initially. It doesn't strike you as the deepest kind of happiness. Um, Sometimes it's an acquired taste. Uh, It actually depends on what kind of personality you have. If you're a personality that likes things a lot, we call them uh, um, a desire type, we call them in um, Buddhism. Equanimity is, you're not sure about it at first. It seems like maybe it might be boring. But if you're an aversive type like me, and, you know, your primary root uh, defilement, as they call them in, in Buddhism, is uh, aversion, uh, equanimity is heaven. It's like, wow, thank you. <laughs> you know, to have the mind clear of reactivity is just an absolute blessing. <laughs> so that might be why I like to talk about it so much. I love equanimity. So equanimity, the sixth sense, equanimity is equanimity or um, peace in the face of the changing circumstances of life or the changing sense experiences of life. So with equanimity, we acknowledge the truth of change and we also acknowledge the futility of reactivity as a way to solve our human quest for peace. With reactivity, we actually hope that that will solve our problem. I'll talk about that more later, but that's why we keep doing it. At some point, we have to see that it's futile, and that helps us to learn to let go. So the whole idea behind equanimity is the ability to let go of reactivity as our Default. So what is equanimity? Sometimes we could call it uh, unconditional acceptance or the absence of reactivity. I think of it as a kind of poise and gracefulness in this world of change. So the equanimous mind is flexible and able to accommodate to the truth of how things are. So absence of reactivity. 
sometimes the image that's used for equanimity is that of a mountain. This past uh, month in January, I went to stay with a friend of mine in uh, Argentina. She's Argentinian and lives right on the edge of the Andes. And uh, so I was surrounded by mountains for about 15 days, 16 days. Uh, climbed them, walked through them, surrounded by them. There was one, I guess it would be a hill near her house that I would walk up in the morning and I would sit and just, there was this whole um, parameter of mountains right in front of me, pretty close. And I would just sit and look at the mountains and just like try to rock them, like to, to really feel the energy of them. They have amazing stability, right? They can hold so much. And that's their power, is like their stability. And that's the power of equanimity. It's its stability and its ability to hold so much. One of the things that I saw when I was there, we went to a park in the south, uh, more mountains, everywhere was mountains, and um, we were staying on a lake, and on the other side of the lake there was a forest fire burning. And somebody had started this forest fire. Apparently it's not uncommon for people to start forest fires so that the value of the land will go down so they can buy it. It's, it's, it's really sad, yeah. So, that, so trying to hold that truth was part of uh, really accepting the way things are. <laughs> Um, but we would watch the fire burn, and you know, every day it was burning more you know, up and down these ridges. And I prayed for the animals, like that they would get out from the fire. And um, you know, on that level, it was really a tragedy. But I felt, I, would, I was tuning into the mountains, and like the mountains themselves could take it. That was the sense, that, the, that, that strength able to take the changing circumstances of life. So I describe equanimity as the quality of a heart and a mind that are so large that they can include everything with a sense of balance and grace and poise. So, and, and I think of equanimity as a grounded um, quality, too. So there's that base of the mountain. That's its power. It's grounded. It's in touch with reality. And yet not bound by attachment to things being a certain way. Sometimes also the image that's used for uh, equanimity, and it's a very different image, but I also really appreciate it, um, is the image of bamboo. So bamboo um, is so flexible. If, you know, there can be a huge storm, and bamboo can be you know, blown around by the storm, but it's, it, it, it can take it. It's so flexible that it can take it. It does, it's not destroyed by it. So its power is the flexibility. That's another part of equanimity is the mind and heart are very flexible. I read a story in one of Eckhart Tolle's books about Krishnamurti and uh, he was this great Indian philosopher that most of you have probably heard of. And he um, traveled over the world for over 50 years uh, trying to convey his message. Um, and at one of his talks in the latter part of his life, I'm going to read this, he surprised his audience by asking, do you want to know my secret? Everyone became very alert Many people in the audience had been listening to him, come to listen to him for 20 or 30 years and still failed to grasp the essence of his teaching. And finally, after all these years, they were going to give him the key. This is my secret, he said. I don't mind what happens. 
So you can hear the flexibility there, right? The flexibility and ability to be with what is true. If you think of our usual minds that are pushed and pulled around all the time, you could describe this as driving on a bumpy road with poor shocks. It's kind of tiring and hard on the nerves. And then you could think of equanimity as like driving a very high-quality car, like a BMW, on a smooth roadway. That's how equanimity feels. It's a much nicer ride. I think of equanimity as a quiet kind of joy. And actually, the more it gets developed, it becomes quieter and quieter. It's not dramatic or flashy. PT can be quite dramatic. Joyous interest can be flashy. But equanimity is really quiet. But that's part of its power, too, because it's profoundly restful. If I had to pick between... PT and equanimity, I would choose equanimity because of the rest and the peace. We're not expending energy and resisting the way things are. So the mind and the heart can rest. Equanimity answers our desire for rest and for peace. So with equanimity, there's this willingness to engage with life on its own terms. You could even say there's a wholeheartedness with equanimity, but a wholeheartedness without attachment. So how do we do that? It's like a koan. It's not indifference or passivity, which it's sometimes thought to be, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But it's actually connected. With equanimity, we're connected to what is happening, but without attachment to it being the way we want it to be. And we don't feel pushed and pulled, because there's not not the reactivity, so um, we can actually truly be present. You might have noticed that the push and pull of grasping and aversion takes us out of the present and it, act, and it distorts our, our um, ability to see clearly. So when uh, grasping and aversion are in abatement, uh, there's a fuller ability to be present and greater clarity to see how to respond. So equanimity is, is a responsive heart and one that has more clarity because of the lack of reactivity. So, in our practice, we can notice when there are moments of equanimity or moments of peace or non-reactivity, an ability to really rest in whatever experience we're having at the six senses. The other thing about equanimity is it lets go of the idea of some future state where we're going to attain what we want or when we get what we want or when conditions are going to be perfect and then we're going to be happy. It lets go of the whole paradigm of perfection, looking for perfection or future happiness. It's a kind of surrender. Remember the first time that I explored this in retreat, I was, um, it was my first long retreat at IMS, yeah. I spent a month trying to figure out what was going to make me happy the rest of my life. That was the main um, thought stream that was going on. And uh, so I was 24, and I kept thinking, okay, how am I going to be happy? How am I going to be happy? How am I going to be happy? And I would say, okay, I think I'll get a, like a cabin in the mountains 
and live there, you know, by myself or whatever, then I'll be happy. And then I go, oh yeah, but that might not work, I might get lonely. So then I think, well, maybe I'll live in a community with like-minded people and, and then I'll be happy. And then I thought, oh, God, they're going to drive me nuts. <laughs> I'm an aversive type, you know. Yeah. And then I think, oh, maybe I'll have some kids. That'll make me be happy. And then I'm like, oh, I want that responsibility. And in, this went on for really a month. It was just um, this burning question. And, and it, everything came up imperfect. Everything came up that there wasn't, like, I couldn't make it work. And it was a time in practice where I felt a lot of fear. I think there was just, just this fear of just like seeing that I couldn't come up with the answer to this question. And um, I remember I would wake up every morning and the first thing I'd notice was fear. So this went on for about a month. And then one day I went into an interview with my teacher who so sweetly was seeing me every day because I was kind of freaked out. And, um, and I, I went and I said, it looks like there's nothing that's going to make me permanently happy. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yep. <laughs> and I said, so I guess the only place to look for happiness is just in the moment like how I'm relating to this moment. And she said, yep. (laughs) And the fear went away that afternoon. And it really was because I started to get realistic, like about where to look for happiness, right? That it's not something we're going to get out there in the future. That kept coming up empty, and that was all the fear. But it's like, oh, we can, we have this opportunity moment by moment to work out our freedom to figure out the answer to this koan, how am I going to be happy? And it it seems to involve some kind of surrender. I had to surrender. I had to surrender to the simplicity of the present moment. There's also a way that equanimity points towards taking responsibility for our happiness. When we really understand equanimity, we're no longer a victim to circumstances. We feel empowered to um, find peace in this world, unconditional peace. That's very empowering when we're not dependent. We find a kind of peace that's not dependent on life being a certain way. That is so handy in the kind of world that we live in. As you know, this changing world. So it's it's an empowering... um, an empowering quality of heart and mind. So, so this is uh, equanimity, the presence. How do we know that equanimity is absent? Well, there's a couple ways. One way is, is indifference. That indifference is not equanimity. Indifference is um, not caring, not connecting, kind of um, removing oneself from connection. So indifference has this withdrawal to it or passivity in response to life. There's a slight turbulence in equanimity that we can feel because we have to expend energy in trying to keep life out. So it's subtle, but it's a it's it's that kind of it's a kind of tension. Though in some ways indifference is easier than equanimity. <laughs> That's why we might choose it over equanimity because um, it, it is protective. In, indifference protects the heart and mind and it protects us from vulnerability. So if we notice that kind of indifference, that we can notice that as, 
Equanimity is not present right now. Somebody described uh, equanimity as unentangled participation, which I kind of like. So participation, there's engagement. Unentangled means uh, free of grasping and aversion. So that's the other way we notice its absence, um, that grasping attachment or aversion or grasping or aversion is present in the mind. Rejecting or or clinging, holding on, or rejecting is present in the mind. So we can, when that's present, we can notice that equanimity is absent, that second task out of the four tasks. Equanimity is not present, (laughs) ha-ha. We can then turn our attention to um, what is present, grasping our version, and, and get to know it. Because that's the truth in the moment. So one of the, talking about developing equanimity, one of the main ways that we hope to develop equanimity is by willing it. But as I said, these last um, bojangas, you can't will them, you can't make them happen. But we might, you know, like, I'm going to accept this. We might start there, like, I'm going to accept this. Um, But it doesn't really work, does it? You could... (laughs) You can try it. We will. Um, For me, the best way to develop equanimity is to engage attachment and aversion, to get in there with them and get to know them, feel them, get to understand how seductive they are and the promises they make, the false promises they make. Grasping and aversion promise that you can control life. (laughs) Aversion promises, like if you hate this enough, you'll get rid of it. Attachment promises, if you hold on, you can keep this. And um, it's, it's subtle, right? It's not like it's out there, but when you really listen, th- these are the, the beliefs underneath. We, we, we kind of unmask them. So we need this kind of honest engagement with the truth of of our experience. And the truth for most of us is there's a fair amount of aversion and attachment going on. It's deep, deep human conditioning. It's not your fault. It's not uh, some personal shortcoming when it happens. It's like, wow, here it's existential dukkha. It's like, here's the human condition. So we get real, we really investigate. We get it viscerally, not intellectually. So sometimes it's large things that we work with developing equanimity around. Perhaps it's a, it's a, it's some huge change in our life, like losing a job or getting divorced or getting a. Um, a very serious health diagnosis, right? Those ones really take um, time usually. And we have to go through the whole process mindfully or with awareness. We can't, it doesn't seem we can skip stages. We have to be willing to be there for the journey. This isn't um, as serious as any of those things, but one place that I've been working to develop equanimity with lately is the logging that's going on next door. So um, it's been about four months now that they've been... So there's the equanimity with the, the sound and um, you know the day-to-day reality, and then there's the equanimity with just around the change in the woods around my house and, and the feeling of the house. And it's been a journey. At the beginning, oh, some days I was so angry, especially when they cut down the trees on my land, right? Our land. Oh, anger, anger. And I just had to be with that. That was the truth for me. And, and, and just not wanting this change to happen. Not wanting it. 
So to be with that, right? But mindfully, just to honor what our truth is. And then the other day, it was interesting. I was um, I, I was I was feeling kind of um, energetically shut down, and usually that's a a key to me that uh, there's something I need to feel that I haven't been wanting to feel. It's usually a sign. So I went for a walk, which helps me often to access uh, what's going on. And I realized I had a lot of grief around. You know, there was a lot of loss for me, huge amount of loss, actually. I, you don't need all the details, but... Um, so I really felt that grief. I let it be there. I really felt it. And then... Um, after that, it was like, oh, it's not the way it used to be. And, and, and there was some you know, deeper acceptance of, of the truth that things had changed. So that's kind of what I mean by a process. Sometimes with um, these life circumstances that, that, that we can't just say, oh, I'm going to be equanimous. We, we honor our process and we, and we allow um, it to unfold. And when we do it with mindfulness, it, I, I think it happens much... Um, I think it generally happens quicker than it would if we didn't have the mind. Because we're not feeding the stories, but we're um, attending to them and letting the mind do its, its um, move towards it towards acceptance or equanimity. Sometimes when I've gone through something and at the end I reach equanimity, there'll be this question like, did I think it wouldn't change? You know, we have this like belief in permanence, right? And it's like, oh yeah, did I think it wouldn't change? Hmm, this is the way of life. One thing I think I've noticed in general with, uh, you know, years of practice is that that process that I described happens more quickly. Now, if it's a huge loss, I think it takes longer, right? The process takes longer. But I think with practice in general, we can go through these processes um, more quickly. I think I might have told this story before. You guys have to forgive me if I come back here after a year. Sometimes you're going to hear repeats. Um, <laughs> I can't always remember what I've told you or not. A number of years ago when I went to Burma, after I was, I was coming home, and I'd been on retreat for a few weeks, and I was coming home and I was in the airport in, in Rangoon, and I was flying to Bangkok, and I had to give a talk that night in Bangkok. So I needed to get there. And uh, so I go up, I'm waiting in line, I go up, and I give them my passport, and they kind of look at me like, uh-huh, uh-huh. can I see your itinerary? I give them my itinerary. And they say, oh, that flight went yesterday. And um, I watched my mind, I was so interested in my mind, and it was like, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. <laughs> I don't like this, I don't like this, what do I do next? And so it was four mind moments till I reached equanimity. Because my mind was really, it was strong. But it's always funny because often in that process of equanimity, the first piece is this isn't happening. Like denial is often the beginning. So it was this isn't happening, this isn't happening. I don't like this, I don't like this. What do I do next? And I bought another ticket and I got to Bangkok, so it was fine. So sometimes the mind just reaches equanimity quickly. So we we investigate um, grasping and aversion when they're present. And especially with grasping and attachment. So with aversion it's so clear, right? But with grasping, Chaz was talking about this, with grasping... Like we often don't realize that it's a hot potato, that it, that it burns. 
um, because we're so entranced by what we want or what we're trying to hold on to. So we actually have the courage to turn and to face this energy of wanting or grasping or attachment. These are all different words for different degrees of this. <laughs> um, this tension, right? But when we turn and we look at it, it's like, oh, it's, there's tension there. It's uncomfortable. And when we see that, that helps us learn to let go. But if we're always entranced by the object that we want and we don't turn towards the grasping, we won't learn that. So that's why we turn towards it, to start to see its stories, to start to see through the stories, to see that, it, that it's painful, that it's suffering. And the great thing about awareness is when it sees that something is suffering enough times, if, if the pattern and grasping is one of our deepest habits, right? So it's not going to happen the first or second time. But if it sees it enough time, or if the mindfulness actually is strong in the moment, it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. It, it learns, it lets go. <coughs> we don't have to do it. Awareness does it. So we like grasping and aversion. That's the other thing. We have to admit that we like them to a certain extent. We like them for the protection and for the illusion of control. We love the illusion of control. But what we see is that the price is high, so we wind up seeing we have a little bit of an existential crisis here. I was teaching once, so I was going to give a talk on uh, clinging. I was talking with my co-teacher, a young woman named Amanda. So I was talking about it a little bit. She goes, I like clinging. It makes me feel better. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I loved that kind of, right? I like clinging. It makes me feel better. Kind of. <laughs> That's the clincher. It's the kind of. It does make us feel better because it's protective. But then the problem is it's protective. It's a shield. It's like grasping and aversion. They shield the heart. They shield us from the wildness of life and yet, they also shield us from life. So we check that out for ourselves. And what we find is um, that we want to be connected with life. And that we're willing to risk softening that shield. We're willing to risk um, being vulnerable. Because that, when at grasping the virgin, protect us from vulnerability. But vulnerability in the beautiful sense of the word, because vulnerable also means alive, and it means connected, in touch with the truth of this wild, wild world that we live in. So we acclimate. We acclimate to um, an open and an undefended heart and mind. Grasping inversion or the defense. So as we allow them to, well, I think of it sometimes as, um, let's say you have this opaque curtain, and you have these, uh, and that curtain is grasping an aversion, and it's protecting our hearts. Mindfulness is like poking little holes in it. Mindfulness of the grasping and aversion is like you took a pin and you just kind of poke it in. Every time you're aware and mindful of grasping and aversion, you're present, you're seeing it, you're um, connecting with it. After a while, what happens when you poke a lot of holes? It starts to be more like a gauze curtain, maybe. <laughs> And then the light can get through, right? And then you can see out. With equanimity, we expand what we consider acceptable in life. My 
teacher used to joke that um, when she started practice, 95% of life was unacceptable to her. <laughs> She's an aversive type also. <laughs> but maybe that's true for most of us, right? And so with um, the development of equanimity, what we're developing is the... Uh, we're expanding how much of life is acceptable to us, how much of life we're able and willing to connect with. And equanimity is the strength that allows us, remember that mountain or that bamboo, (laughs) it's the strength that allows us to be vulnerable in the best sense of that word. to be in touch with life, with this wild life. I love this uh, quote from Sylvia Bornstein. I found it in Shambhala Sun magazine. Life is like a continuous quiz show where the only question ever asked is, how are you going to manage whatever is happening now without confusing yourself and creating suffering? (laughs) Should I repeat it? Sure. (laughs) It's okay. It's like a quiz show on TV, right? But there's only one question and you get it over and over again. How are you going to manage whatever is happening now without confusing yourself and creating suffering. That's what we're trying to figure out with equanimity. Another quote related to this. Stress is the consequence of failure to adapt to change. So um, you could say that grasping and aversion are our main stressors, right? And equanimity is um, the lack of stress because we have learned how to adapt to change. So that's another way that we develop equanimity is, is, is developing the ability to adapt to change, to be flexible like the bamboo. And we get a chance to do that almost every minute of practice, right? You come in here and, and you don't know what you're going to get, but it's likely to be different. <laughs> right? So how do you react to that? Let's say you had a pleasant sitting last time and you come in and it's like, oh good, another pleasant sitting. And that isn't what you get at all, right? Like how do we deal with that? Or you come in and and we're sitting here and everything seems to be good and then our back starts hurting, our shoulders start hurting. Like, how do we deal with that? That's our equanimity practice. Never a shortage of opportunities. (laughs) One way I've heard it put was we investigate the gap between what we want and what is. That's 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 it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And life is our teacher. Life is our best teacher. It's always coming up with change. <laughs> Another way that we work with developing equanimity is working with feeling tone. So feeling tone, as many of you know, is the second foundation of mindfulness. And it's the... uh, Some people call it the first impact or the first impression of a moment of experience, whether it is felt as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So you'll notice that I didn't say it's whether the object is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, because that has nothing to do with it. it, Well, something to do with it, but but it's really how the moment comes together. I think I might have said something similar. Like, you know, one chocolate chip cookie could be pleasant, and ten 
might be unpleasant. So it's not the cookie. <laughs> the cookie's innocent. It's, it's, just, it's just how the moment comes together, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And, and this is considered a key place for freedom because without mindfulness, we have very predictable ways that we respond to these different feeling tones. You probably already know that if it's pleasant, without mindfulness, our response is going to be grasping. And with unpleasantness, without mindfulness, our response is going to be aversion. And with neutral, without mindfulness, our response is going to be spacing out, you know, pay attention. With mindfulness, we get the um, option to respond in a different way. So when we first start practicing, if there's an unpleasant stimulus and there, the, the aversion feels like it's part of that experience, like the, it's married. We, we can't even conceive of them as separate. <laughs> that unpleasant is aversion. You know, it's like, um, so with mindfulness, we start to see that they don't have to be married, bound together. And for the first, I, again, a lot of these things you remember the first time you really get it. I remember the first time I really got it, I was sitting in a meditation hall listening to, well, not listening to, being irritated by <laughs> um, the lawnmower outside. I'd been having a very pleasant sitting, everything was going well, and then they started mowing the lawn outside. And, you know, unpleasant stimulus, Right. And then um, so lots of aversion arose, lots of thoughts like, why don't they mow the lawn during the walking periods? It ruined my meditation. Everything was going well. You know, the usual. And, um, and then, um, so I, I got interest. I was like, hearing the sound, unpleasant. And then I was like, oh, all of that stuff that whole story, the version, all of that going on in my mind, it's only because it's unpleasant. So, oh, I don't have to do that. You know, I had that first glimpse that they didn't have to go together. And so we start to, to see this for ourselves, that it doesn't have to go together. And same with pleasant and, and grasping. It can just be pleasant. And the whole story we might tell ourselves about how we have to keep it or all of that or how we want it to last forever. Oh, it's just, it's just, it's extra. So we have to uh, check this out for ourselves. And we'll talk in the instructions tomorrow morning a little more about feeling tall. I can't remember last year if I talked about morning tea in Burma. I talked about it last night. I mean, not last night. Thursday night. <laughs> that common ground. Maybe I didn't. You guys want to talk. Okay, so I'm going to tell you guys about tea. Tea. Pleasant feeling tongue. So, when I go to Burma, uh, one of my favorite experiences there is in the morning they have this sweet tea. It's called the Pidiecho. Um, and it, it's really good it has uh, sweetened condensed milk in it which probably has a lot to do with that and they froth it up and they, they like make it perfect right so I start looking forward to this like six months before I go to Burma <laughs> so the highlight of every day in Burma is my tea in the morning right and it's one of those things maybe you have this in practice like you know a big Afternoon, practice is hard and tired, be like, oh, there's tea tomorrow morning. You know, be like (laughs) the thing that would uh, get me through. And um, so a lot was hanging on tea this time. So I went to, it was one time I went to Burma, and um, I really drop in quick when I go there to practice because the monastery is very old. It's like 800 years people have been practicing there, and it's just really powerful, powerful energy. So the first morning, I go in ready for my tea, right? My PHO, my sweet tea. And, um, I, and, I, and my 
I tend to be really strong and mindfulness in the morning. I have more energy. I, I wake up and I'm energized. That's the kind of person I am. So I'm really drinking this tea mindfully the first morning. And I cried the whole way through. Because the pleasantness kept going away. It would be like, pleasant, go away, pleasant, drop away, pleasant, drop away. And I'd be at the end of the sip, and it'd be like, pleasant, gone. And I was so disappointed. Like, I... It wasn't doing it. It was pleasant, but it didn't last. So every morning, I... I explored my relationship to the pleasantness of the tea and the experience and, and, and the disappointment. I kept being so disappointed, like disappointed in this tea. And one, I remember one time at the end of the, the, the cup of tea, I was so angry at the tea. <laughs> I was like, you didn't do it and you were supposed to do it. it it's just that the mind is not a rational creature. I think you've noticed that by now, right? I'm telling you like it was, right? It was like, it was so funny. And on one level, I was so interested in watching how my mind was doing this, right? It's like so angry. And then this went on for a while. And then one time I was drinking the tea. So I didn't try to really change it. It's just being aware of what's happening like we've told you guys to do. So one morning I'm drinking the tea. And, you know, so there was the contact with the taste, but the pleasantness was what was most noticeable. Pleasantness, dropping away, letting go. And it would happen simultaneously. So it was like pleasantness, letting go, pleasantness, letting go, pleasantness, letting go, moment after moment. And the experience was one of deep peace, equanimity. Because the letting go was happening simultaneously with each moment as the pleasantness ended. It ends each moment, right? And what was most obvious to me then was not actually the pleasantness of the tea, but the pleasantness of the equanimity. The peace, the deep peace. So, the relationship of attachment and suffering changed to a relationship of equanimity and deep peace just through mindfulness, just through awareness. In the Majjhima Nikaya, one of the books of the Discourses of the Buddha, he says, develop a mind and heart that is vast like space where experience is both pleasant and unpleasant, can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind and heart like vast sky. So where experience is both pleasant and unpleasant, can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. That's what we're trying to figure out. It's going to get late. Another great place for me where I practiced a lot um, with equanimity is with uh, health problems, health challenges. They're like a Zen master. You can't um, get away from them. They're going to tell it like it is. Um, And uh, a number of years ago, I had a, um, a, a period of bad health and, um, it was one of those kind of vague illnesses like chronic fatigue. And um, so I would have days where I uh, felt um, not good, had, you know, symptomatic days or days when um, things were difficult. And then I would have days when I felt normal, and like myself, you could say. And um, I, it was really a roller coaster ride, right? Because on the days when I felt normal, I'd be like, oh, great, I'm cured. This is wonderful, right? Lots of attachment. And then it would change. I'd have days when I didn't feel bad. I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm going to be this way the rest of my life. It's going to get worse. I'm going to be unable to work. And and so catastrophizing, lots of aversion. 
And so at first this was the roller coaster and I jumped on it every time, you know. Every time I felt I had a good day, I went, I went all you know, all out on that. And every time that I had symptomatic days I'd be all out on that. And then finally I'm like, you know what? I think I gotta get a grip on this. And I was suffering a lot. So I started to really pay attention to how I related to basically pleasant and unpleasant. You know, the good days were pleasant, good days were pleasant, bad days were unpleasant. So I learned something really interesting, and it was that breaking this habit worked best if I focused on the pleasant days, the days that I felt good. So I would start to notice on the days that I felt good, I would start to see the stories like, oh, now I'm going to be better for forever and, and everything's cool now for the rest of my life. And, 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 and the attachment, the wanting, I started to um, notice that and I started to not buy into it. I would just enjoy the good health of that day, but I would remind myself this will pass as a way to kind of let go, right? And what I started to see was that as I started to do that, on the days when my health was more stressed, I could do the same. That I started to not buy into that. Again, all the catastrophizing stories and everything, I started to be able to let them go by. I focused my attention on, can I be with these, this unpleasantness? Can I just be with it? And I increased my capacity to be with unpleasantness. I actually found that when I wasn't reactive to it, it, was, it wasn't as bad as, as I thought. And, um, yeah, it's like increasing the tolerance to be with unpleasantness. And then over time, I, I got healthier. And I think partly I got healthier because I wasn't so stressed. I, you know, stress, it's not the only reason why we're sick, but it does tend to exacerbate health problems, right? And so it, I really significantly lowered my stress level by learning how to relate to the pleasant and the unpleasant. It was a great teaching that I never forgot. I, um... I think some of you know that Thich Nhat Hanh uh, suffered a, a, a massive stroke um, a number of months ago and um, has been in rehab and, um, and is unlikely to really recover enough to actively teach, is my understanding. Um, but I heard, I read again, I think it was in the Shambhalasan, one thing that Thich Nhat Hanh has said is, Knowing how to suffer well is essential to realizing true happiness. Which I think is... That's what I was trying to learn with my illness, was how to suffer well. And so I heard that when his first words, when he could speak after a stroke, apparently he can't speak very much, but his first words were, in, out, the breath. In, out, happy, thank you, so happy. Seems like there's a fair amount of equanimity there. (laughs) With with his situation, right? Which is, on the outside, looks pretty bad, right? But on the inside, he has found peace. In, out, Happy, thank you, so happy. Hmm, there's so much more to say, but it might be time to wrap this one up. I almost feel like ending with you not I like it so much. <laughs> Maybe I'll read it again at the end. <laughs> well, one last little tip for equanimity. Sometimes it's helpful to have little um, mantras that point us um, 
in that direction. We can't force it, but we can suggest the possibility of equanimity to our minds and hearts and see if it might want to take. Um, and one that I've, I've seen posted at Common Ground that I like a lot is, um, this is the way things are right now. So I use that sometimes when I find that I'm kind of fighting against reality. So that's the opposite of equanimity, is to fight against reality. Um, I say, oh, this is the way things are right now. And see if the heart can accommodate to that. So the lot next to us now is void of trees. This is the way things are right now. Another thing that I've used is um, the question, is this moment okay? I used that a lot when I was talking about the period of illness. Um, um, when, I, when I had the days when I wasn't feeling well and, and I'd have the unpleasant sensations, right? I, ju- I just asked myself, is this moment okay? Be like, yeah, I can deal with this moment. And that's the only moment we have to deal with, so... Sometimes when I really wanted to challenge myself, I'd say, if I have to feel this way the rest of my life, is that okay? And sometimes I could answer yes. So just challenging, right, the usual stories of the mind, bringing in some larger possibilities. Sometimes I ask the question, why am I not happy? right now Mm -hmm. and if the answer is because of that (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't count (laughs) it just is um, Eckhart totally recommends do I have a problem right now do I have a problem right now thinking of the accent in the words In the end, perhaps equanimity comes down to accepting that we live in an imperfect world. We live in a world that doesn't conform to our wishes. The third Zen patriarch in a very famous poem says, One thing, all things, move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. So I like that phrase, to be without anxiety about non-perfection. So all of this exploration of um, equanimity, it lightens the heart and mind. We feel less burdened by life, or unburdened by life. And then the places where, where there are there is burden, that's where we that's where we explore, and that's where we extend the capacity of the heart and mind to accept and to hold this wide life as it is. And it doesn't mean um, passivity just to clarify that. Because actually when there's equanimity, we have more clarity about how to respond, and we do respond. Because remember that equanimity is engaged, it's connected. And so when there's engagement and connection, um, naturally we, we respond, we participate, back to unentangled participation. So it's not a withdrawal from the world, it's not a detachment from the world. It's a, actually a clear way of being in the world. And also from this equanimity develops a deep fearlessness. When we're dependent on conditions to be a certain way, like that story when I was on retreat, and when we're at the mercy of attachment and aversion, uh, life can seem pretty scary. But when the capacity of our heart and minds have expanded to 
be able to hold more and more and more of the truth of the way things are, what is there to be afraid of? I will just end, oh it is late, I will just end once again with Thich Nhat Hanh's words, <laughs> his first words after a major stroke. In, out, happy, thank you, so happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.